This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the National Model Railroad Association. With almost 10,000 prototype photos and drawings online, we make it even more fun. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, the show that thinks outside the toolbox. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm the other guy, Jim Martin. We're glad you've dropped by to join the party. We appreciate you lending us your busy time, and we want to reward you with two more of Model Railroading's Thinkers and Doers. This time, we're going to look at fitting the maximum model railroading into 72 square feet. And whether it's small, medium, large, or extra large, we're also going to look at suiting out your layout. Jim and his guest will look at what well-dressed layouts have been wearing for the past four decades. But first, it's time to redefine the iconic 4x8 beginner's layout. This may sound like the new math, but 4x8 into 8x9 does not go. But 1x32 does. Quite nicely, in fact. Here's Trevor and his guest with the explanation. It's time to challenge another convention in model railroading. Namely, that for a beginning hobbyist building a first layout, the best design choice is the 4 foot by 8 foot rectangle. For decades, the 4 by 8 has been a staple of track planning, particularly in HO scale, in no small part because it's the most common size used for plywood sheet goods in North America. And while 4 by 8 layout designs still feature regularly in magazines, books, and online, a number of modelers who enjoy thinking about layout design feel it's time to do away with the plywood slab. I must admit that I'm no fan of it myself, perhaps because I've built 4x8-foot layouts in the past, and I've always found them to be somewhat frustrating. But I also feel that if we don't like something, it's up to us to change it. So that raises a question. If the 4x8 is not the best choice for a starter layout, what is? We'll never be able to get rid of the so-called sacred sheet unless we can offer suitable alternatives. Well, lifelong hobbyist Scott Perry feels the same way, and he's offered up an alternative design for a beginner's layout. It's called the Heart of Georgia Railroad, the Hog for short, and Scott maintains a blog to share the design with beginners looking for a better start into the hobby. We'll have a link to the Hog on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com, so be sure to check it out. Meantime, I'm pleased to welcome Scott to the show to describe how the Hog came to be and why he feels it's a better start for beginners. Scott, thanks for joining me. Hi, Trevor. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, let's start with that 4x8. You're not a fan of it, are you? No, I hate the 4x8, in fact. I think it's outlived its lifespan, especially now that operations are such a large part of model railroading today. So what sort of shortcomings are there then with the big plywood rectangle? There are quite a few, actually. You can see a 4 by 8 all at one time when you look at it, and thus it really looks very small. You see your trains going around and around, and, and in your mind's eye, you know you're not going anywhere. The vast majority of the plans, too, for 4 by 8s are really just not designed for operations. All of the books that are available that have them, very seldom does the track work support an operating session. On a 4 by 8 you're looking at a sheet of plywood, and construction techniques for a 4 by 8 are not like those of a large basement layout. So when you're building a small 4 by 8 you're really not learning anything. And all of this is about building skills. And if you don't start out learning things with your small layout, you're going to have to relearn things or learn new techniques on your big layout. The biggest one, though, that makes me hate the 4x8 is your minimum radius can never be more than 22 inches. And it's just too small, especially for the large locomotives that we have in modern day or even the big steam power. Passenger trains just will not go and don't look right on a 22-inch radius. And then the last one, to me, the 4x8s, they all look the same. 
They're over and under and through a tunnel. Very seldom is there any kind of unique four by eight. Honestly, I think they've all been designed. You've mentioned a number of interesting things there. You talked about the possibilities for operation and also the minimum radius and how things don't look right on 22-inch radius curves in HO scale. It sounds like one of the other issues is that that combination of wanting to operate trains and tight curves and the tight switches that go with them can actually introduce frustration for the new modeler, can't they? Because of equipment reliability, for instance. Oh, they certainly can. I've noticed on some of the latest 4x8 how-to projects, the first thing they do is they start cutting up turnouts to make them tighter, even more than a number five or a number four. You've got very specialized radius curves. These are not the things that somebody new to the hobby needs to be dealing with. You need room for the locomotives to run. You need reliability. You don't want them to uncouple. You don't want them to run off the track. You want it to be smooth, and you want it to be a good experience for the person so that they want to build a new layout, a bigger layout. I've seen, I can't tell you how many 4 by 8 layouts that were somebody's first foray into the hobby, and they never even got to the scenery level, and they quit. Yes, and I think that's what we're trying to avoid with this. And obviously, you You've given a lot of thought to this issue, to the problems of the 4x8, and there'd be a number of options that one could pursue to come up with an alternative, but your alternative is the heart of Georgia Railroad. How did that railroad come about? When did you start thinking about that particular design, and was there a specific thing that prompted it, like someone coming to you and saying, I'm looking for something better? Trevor, the whole thing was an accident, and if you had told me that the heart of Georgia was going to become the layout design that it is, I would have laughed. This all started when my friend Steve bought a lot large house back in December of 2005, and he had a huge basement. And he called me over because he knew I designed layouts for people. And he said, hey, look, I want to design this big layout and get started on it right away. And I asked him, I said, Steve, how many layouts have you built in the past? And his answer was none. I said, so you never finished a layout? No, I never have. So I asked him, I said, before we do this, and and the design process for a large layout takes quite a while, Why don't you build a small layout and build your skills up, learn how to lay track, learn how to do scenery, learn how to handle DCC, and build all these skills. And you can do this while you're finishing out your basement and getting ready for the design. So he's like, that's great. Can you help me with that? He says, give me a four by eight design that I can build. So being a layout designer, I've got just books and books and books on track plans. So I started going through them and I looked at the four by eights. And the more I looked at them, the more I hated them because I knew the skills that Steve needed to build and I knew what he wanted to build in the future and they just weren't going to get him there. So what I did was I told Steve, I said, give me a weekend. We're going to start from scratch and we're going to design you something to build. And that's when we started designing the heart of Georgia. I really wanted something that was tangible to him. I wanted it to be a real railroad, not just something that you nail onto a board. Being a fan of Southern railroads and small short lines, I found this railroad called the Heart of Georgia, which runs in southern part of Georgia. It's an east-west bridge line that once was the old Seaboard Coastline Railroad. And I told him, I said, look, here's something that we can model, but let's go learn about it first. So we packed up the car and grabbed the cameras, and we spent two days down in South Georgia in the heat of the summer sun chasing the railroad. And we had a ball. 
it had everything you needed for a small railroad. It had a marshalling yard and switching points, and it had a purpose. It was bridge traffic between the CSX and the Norfolk Southern. So that's how we got started. And I started looking at it because I knew that Steve wanted to get heavy into operations. So I said, this layout's got to be something that we can operate. I started sketching, and within a couple of weeks, the heart of Georgia was born in January of 2006. I think in that description, you've mentioned a number of the criteria that you set for the design, something that could be operated, something that would build his skills towards building a larger layout. I assume ease of construction was top of the list as well because you wanted to encourage him to get building on this? Yeah, the layout had to be a success for him, and he needed to finish it. The reason for that is, is because you need all of those basic skills in order to build a large layout. And a large layout is a massive investment of both time and money. So I wanted him to have this first taste of success so that he felt confident when he started building his new layout. Learning the basics, though, is what it was all about, skill building. It's slightly more difficult to build a heart of Georgia than a 4 by 8 but not enough that any new modeler can't have success and finish the layout. The basics we were after were building bench work that's similar to what you build in a large layout, laying track, basic scenery, DCC systems. It gives you a chance to tinker with those rolling stock, how to make your rolling stock work and how to make sure that everything couples and the cards roll okay, and structure building. But I did want to keep it simple, only basic tools, no power saws, no anything else. You can build the heart of Georgia with a handsaw and a screw gun. That's really all you need. Every cut on every board is a straight cut, and we wanted to keep it small. So I took the 4 by 8 and blew it apart. The heart of Georgia Railroad is 32 square feet. It's exactly the same as the 4 by 8 Right, and we'll have a link to the layout plan on our site so that listeners can have a good look at the design. But briefly, it's an 8 by 9 foot layout with a central operating pit. It actually requires less space than a 4 by 8 when you take into account the aisle space you need around a plywood slab doesn't it? That's correct. A four by eight, in order to operate it, and let's say you have two fellows that want to get together for an operating session, you need two feet of space all the way around the layout. So essentially, the operating zone of the railroad is bigger. It's essentially an eight by 12. The hog, if you operate it from the central pit, is only an eight by nine foot footprint. So it fits into a small bedroom or a small space very conveniently. But the good thing is, is when you're in the pit and you look at the railroad, you can never see more than about 25% of the railroad at any one time. So the train actually looks like you're going somewhere because you have to move along with the train. Unlike the four by eight where you see everything at once and the whole train is always in view, it's not the case with the heart of Georgia. It's almost a rail fanner's layout, much like the modern layouts that you see. Now, I hadn't really thought about the fact that you can't see it all at once and yet on a four by eight you can. That's an interesting design perspective. What other notable features are on the layout? I, I noticed, for instance, you've used larger radius curves and number six turnouts on the main track for example. That was obviously intentional. And why did you do that? So my friend Steve, I knew that he was going to build a layout that was featuring B&O big steam power. These are large locomotives and he wanted to run passenger trains. So these require incredibly large radius curves. So what I wanted to do was I knew that he, he was building up his fleet and would need to run those and test them and, and just get them out and, and about. So we kept the mainline radius at 26 inches minimum. Some of the radiuses expand larger than that. They're over 27 inches, but the minimum mainline radius stayed at 26 inches so that you could run a fairly sizable locomotive or passenger car. The number six turnouts as well, that was the biggest one that we could work in to the layout. Number 
number sixes don't work real well on a four by eight, but on this layout, they fit in just fine. And it keeps derailments to a minimum and allows the passenger cars to look a little more prototypical. The passing sidings on this railroad are much longer than a four by eight. They'll hold up to nine cars. So this allows you to pass what really looks like a train instead of four cars in a caboose. I like the operational potential for this much, much better. But the passenger cars are what was when we actually got them onto the railroad and started running them. It was amazing how much better they looked than the 4x8 did. I'll bet. I noticed that you did include a continuous run. Obviously, people like to be able to sit back and watch the trains run, particularly when they're new in the hobby. But you've also designed this layout so that it can be run point to point, haven't you? The railroad essentially is a point to point. So the model replicates that. It goes from America's Georgia over to Vidalia and back again and just hauls bridge traffic for the other two railroads. So we wanted to duplicate that. It does have a continuous run, but the purpose of the continuous run is to extend the main line. So when you're actually operating the railroad and you go from one town to the other, you have to loop the railroad one full time before you go to the town. Thus, it artificially lengthens the railroad. So if you were leaving from Americas and going to Vidalia, you would actually circle the railroad about four times before you got to the town of Vidalia. So your operating length is much, much longer. That's interesting. That's sort of an advanced operating concept being introduced to a beginner's layout. Uh, Another one is that you've included interchanges with the two railroads, obviously because the prototype had those, but was that an attempt to introduce some more advanced operating concepts to a beginner? I'm a tinkerer and I've been designing layouts for a long time. And the big thing about small layouts is they're far more complex to design than a large layout. With a large layout, you need certain operational devices to make the layout believable. You need marshalling yards, you need long passing sightings, you need large industries, you need certain things that keep the layout going, including an off-the-layout destination and an origin for, for trains. So when you start looking at a small layout, the ability to interchange is one of the best ways to kind of justify the purpose of the railroad and to bring traffic on and off the railroad. So I developed this thing I call a twinner change. It's a twin interchange system. When you look at it, it's a mainline track that goes through an area with a right and left passing siding. And off that right and left passing siding is an interchange track to some other railroad. When you approach the twinner change from one direction, your interchange is off on the right. When you approach it from the other direction, your interchange system is off the left. So in this loop that goes from one side to the other of an interchange, it actually resembles two separate interchanges and operates that way. Okay, very interesting. Let's talk about the actual success of the Hog Railway because a lot of layouts get designed and sometimes we never know if they've actually been built. And certainly that's a problem with the 4x8s. There's a lot of 4x8 designs that are presented in magazines and online. And unless we actually heard feedback from the builders, we wouldn't know whether they were successful designs. But you've had a lot of feedback on the Hog Railway, haven't you? How popular has the design been? I stopped counting at 40 layouts. I know there's more than that now, but when I first started this, I thought it would be unique to kind of start a Yahoo e-group and chat about it because the actual layout was built by an operating club that I belonged to. So there were about five of us that put this thing together, and we wanted to keep track of what we were doing because different people were doing everything. My friend Bob Wheeler was building locomotives. My friend Paul Rankin was designing some of the electronics. So what we did was I just started this Yahoo e-group, and we left it open to anybody that wanted to join. 
a couple of friends found out that we were doing this project. So they wanted to see the photos and what we were doing. And now the Yahoo eGroup has 450 members, mostly in the United States. And all these other individuals that have built these layouts have posted their ideas. We've identified some problems and made some corrections there. But folks have built it in N-scale, O-scale, ON3, ON30, just about every way you can imagine. There's an S-scale layout out there as well. And they've all contributed to this. It's become almost kind of a cult thing. It's taken on its own life. Everybody kind of makes it their own. There's no two that are alike in any way, shape, form, or fashion. These layouts have shown up now. They're in children's hospitals. Some are being used for operations training. One of them was built as a raffle layout. They're being used for a lot of different things, things I just never even came up with. There's even a Hogwarts Express one that's designed for children at a train show. And we should stress, though, that despite the fact, as you say, that you had a group of people building the first one, this really is intended for one person to be able to build, isn't it? And a person who's new at the hobby at that. That's correct. It's one person with simple tools. Everything you need is either on the Yahoo eGroup or on the Hog blog spot. So if you need a cutting diagram for the foam, it's there. If you need a list of lumber to go to your local supply store, it's all there. Everything that you can possibly want to change or do, there's some kind of comment about that. It's way more than you can get in a single little book or a magazine article. So have you had feedback then from builders who are new to the hobby, who built it themselves? Trevor, the very thing that I love the most is when they write me and say, Scott, I'm throwing away my heart of Georgia Railroad, because that means that they've started on their big basement layout. A lot of folks have used this to build their skills and to get into other things. One of the biggest ones is people that have never operated on a railroad have built these things and had operating sessions. And once they get hooked, the first thing they do is they get rid of their heart of Georgia and start their big railroad. I've been very, very proud and very happy of this design and what it's done to help people get as enthusiastic about the railroad as I am. We've sort of been talking around my last question here, but I think we should maybe sum it up for listeners. I said off the top that it's one thing to complain about something or say that's just not right in the hobby, and I do that a lot as well, I have to admit, but it's another thing to actually go ahead and try to change something by coming up with an alternative such as you have for this beginner's layout. Why do you feel it's important for the more experienced hobbyists to create and share fresh ideas like this for small, easy-to-build beginners layouts? What's the value there for the hobby? It's our job as experienced modelers to help others. It's a journeyman's hobby, and we're supposed to help the apprentice. That's just my policy. My friends in the NMRA, I've been a longtime NMRA member, helped me out when I was a kid. I had master model railroaders that gave me hours of personal instruction, helped me with problems. I went to monthly clinics at our local division. Highly recommend the NMRA, by the way, but I didn't learn this on my own. I learned it from the books that other modelers wrote, the articles that they've produced, and a lot of one-on-one help, friends in operating groups. That's how we learn this. We, we learn it from others. I never refuse to help another model railroader when I can. I've got a blog that I run, Model Railroaders Notebook. I've been blogging for many, many years, and the reason I do it is to help people, to show them what I'm doing try to develop new things when I can, and then answer the questions. I give frequent clinics at our local club here in Salt Lake City called the Utah Society of Railroad Modelers. And by pushing the envelope and trying new things and expanding the knowledge base of the hobby, that's how we grow. That's how everything improves and gets better. 
And when it comes right down to it, Trevor, it's a way to make friends. And for me, that's what the hobby's all about. Giving beginners in particular a good start on the hobby, a more positive start on the hobby, means they're going to be around in the hobby much longer, aren't they? I want them to be happy with their first start into the railroads. If I can help them build a 4 by 8 to completion, then they are hooked. They're here for the life of the hobby. Scott, listen, thanks for joining me. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and thanks for sharing your thoughts on beginner layout design with our listeners. Thanks, Trevor. I appreciate being on the show. I've been speaking with Scott Perry about the heart of Georgia Railroad, a beginner's layout designed as a better alternative to the traditional 4x8. Be sure to check our episode guide for a link to the hog design and blog. You'll find that at themodelrailwayshow.com. Thanks, guys. I like what Scott's done with his 32 square feet. You could never get a decent continuous run and fit in 13 turnouts as he has done on a traditional 4x8 sheet of plywood. You know, I'd been thinking a lot about 4x8s lately before I approached Scott, and one of the things that hadn't occurred to me was that his design means that you never see the whole layout at once, and that's really important for making you feel like the trains are actually going someplace. The other thing that I really liked about what he said was that while he was presenting fairly advanced concepts in this layout, things like operation and the idea of interchange, the layout's designed for even beginners to be able to build. Good point, Trevor. And I also like the fact that although he says he's happy when people throw away his original layout to build something bigger, there's nothing that says you can't take those initial elements and just incorporate them into a larger point-to-point layout. Certainly not. The layout is designed. I can see plenty of opportunities to expand it. We encourage everybody to go and look at the gallery for this. And of course, go and look at Scott's website. We'll have links to that on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com. I have to say also, I think what scared people away from skinny little layouts in the past has been maybe a lack of backdrop painting skills. But what has come along in the last few years are a number of very high quality commercially available backdrops to expand that one foot deep space. Or or they can just invite you over to paint their backdrops because you're quite good at that. I'm afraid I'm booked. Okay. (laughs) We'll just remind folks the best way to listen to the show is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You can find us on iTunes, podcast.com and podfeed.net and you'll never miss an episode. Next, who wants to build a naked layout when off the solutions are so readily at hand. Jim and his guests discuss the history of a company that has helped demystify scenery techniques so all can enjoy. A little more than a year ago, we were all holding our breath as the news spread of a major fire at Woodland Scenics Manufacturing Facility in Lynn Creek, Missouri. Think about it. A fire in a factory potentially full of polyesters, expanded foams, and ground foams. How bad was it? Was anyone hurt? And more selfishly, what might happen to the hobby supply line? Well, the good news is everyone got out safely. The fire was limited to a few buildings, and there was barely a hiccup in the shipping department. But it all got me to thinking last year what a hole there'd be in our hobby without such restlessly innovative companies. From a few colors of ground foam some 40 years ago, Woodland Scenics now makes virtually everything one needs to construct a layout, except for the tracks and trains themselves. And who knows, maybe we'll get a scoop on that today. Let's check in on Woodland Scenics, and here's company spokesperson Lynn Mitchell. Lynn, I think when we were setting this up, we didn't actually get a title for you, did we? No, I'm a copywriter in the marketing department. Well, that's something Trevor and I understand full well. And by the way, welcome to the show, Lynn. Thank you very much for talking with us. Walk us through that fateful day, January 5th, 2012. Wow. We just passed our anniversary for that a little over a month ago, and it was a crazy day. The fire started a little bit after noon. I was actually on a walk out in the back 40 in the soccer field. 
and coming back, I could see all this smoke and everything going on. And as I get closer, I realized that it's our building that's on fire. By the time I got there, the fire department was there. They'd already been fighting it. But from what I understand, one of our employees was sitting out in the back area. We have a common area where we have lunch, and he noticed some flames coming out of the roof. Well, he got on the phone to 9 run right away. And somebody in the building at the same time noticed that we had a fire and put out the fire alarm and everybody followed everything to the letter. I think that was probably the most amazing thing to me because as fast as that fire took off, everybody got out of the building immediately. We all met in the place where we're supposed to meet. All the safety procedures just went like clockwork. By the time the fire department got there, they were really impressed because we were out there and they could immediately start the fire. Everyone was accounted for. Which is why we can do this interview without sounding macabre because of that. Exactly. And it was a beautiful day, too, by the way. It was one of those rare January days where it's like in the 50s. It was a gorgeous day. So we're all across the street in front of the police station watching this happen and just kind of wondering, you know, what? it was really heart-wrenching. Yeah. But I tell you what, I couldn't believe it. This was on a Thursday. Every one of us was back to work on Monday. Every one of us. The management team put a crisis intervention plan in place. A crew worked over the weekend, set up computers. We were ready to go to work on Monday morning. Yeah, it was amazing. Big time operation on a small place, like a lot of it people. It is. Yeah, and I, we're small. Yeah, I don't even look to see where a lot of the stuff comes from, but I'll bet everybody that day found out where Lynn Creek, Missouri is. Lynn Creek is located between Lake Ozark and Osage Beach which are two of the larger towns in the lake area. You'd be the major employer there, right? Well, actually, yes, we are. Yet yet I heard you say you're small. You know, when I think of, this is my first, quote, tour of duty at a manufacturing plant. I never worked in manufacturing. When I think of manufacturing, I, I think of this great big apparatus and big buildings, but we're about 100 people, and our facilities are spread out over several buildings. That day, we only lost one of our buildings. We lost about 10% of our manufacturing at that time. But we're all in-house. So nothing comes in a container from China to you to package? Everything is in-house. That's truly remarkable. all our manufacturing, our product development, our art and graphic design, our marketing, administration, everything. It's an interesting organization. I love it. You're in a great spot. I love the small town atmosphere. So oh, yes. It doesn't hurt being yeah. around the lake. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lynn, I'm old enough to... Re- well, heck, I'm old enough to remember when Pluto was a planet, but uh, <laughs> I'm also old enough to remember dyed sawdust and powdered paint pigments as the, the principal ground cover materials in modern uh-huh. I'm old enough to remember the recipes that said put asbestos in plaster. That's another story. Yes. But when did ground foam come along and who thought of it? Ground foam... I believe was widely used in architectural modeling. It wasn't necessarily commercially produced. I think a lot of architectural models made their own materials. And when I know Dwayne and Dave, Dave Osmond and Dwayne Fulton, our CEO, they're the ones that actually started Woodland Scenics. When they had the architectural modeling firm, they made all of their own architectural materials. They made their trees, they made their ground foam, and I think some railroaders were using it at the time, too. I know sawdust was real popular, but I think some of them were, you know, messing around with foam a little bit. But I think I can safely say that Woodland Scenics 
kind of took the process of using ground foam way beyond the current availability and the usage at the time. Through their own product development and testing and trying this and trying that, they found various ways to apply the process differently to create different textures, different colors. And by taking all of that and putting it all together, I think Woodland Scenics created the very first system that truly did realistic scenery. That's a good word to use, system. It is. Everything we do is a system. Yes, and you can buy the cookbook, right? Yes, you can buy the cookbook. It's the scenery manual and the subterrain manual. And you don't have to buy the how-to videos. They're on YouTube and on our website free of charge. You were the first hobby supplier, first scenery hobby product supplier, I believe, to advertise heavily in the hobby media. I think so. Back then... There was a company called Lifelike, and they had some sawdust, and they had some different things. But I think we were really the very first full-fledged supplier of scenery as put together in a system to create a realistic layout. I have some Lifelike brown sawdust. Okay. Uh, I bought mail order back in 1959 as a teenager, and Uh I still have uh, half a bag of that, and it actually looks very good under pine trees, so I never throw anything away. Oh, no. (laughs) Which uh, leads me to uh, talking about the competition. There are other several large scenery material suppliers out there serving the hobby. It's good for us. How do you regard the competition? Competition has greatly increased. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery, right? (laughs) But seriously, competition, I think, is healthy. I think it's good for modelers, absolutely. I think it's good for the industry. I think it's good for us. It keeps us on our toes. It also presents a really good opportunity for us to market the differences between us and our competitors, because there are differences. And it gives us an opportunity as modelers to combine those differences, too. Yes, absolutely. I think what makes us unique, though, is our innovation and our product development. At the core of our company, we're a research and development company. I mean, from the very beginning, we have always innovated and continue to innovate products and come out with products to solve problems, to make modeling easy, and importantly, to open the hobby up to anybody who wants to model. We're very proud of our product development team here. We have a group of artists and craftsmen and women who just do amazing things. I will try and find any excuse that I can during the day to go back into product development. You walk back there, you know, and you see the tables. They're just, they're filled. They're filled with the projects. And my coworkers, they are geniuses and they are constantly, I mean, that's their job. They research, they develop, they test products. It's amazing. You're working in an art house that supplies... A, we are. A, a, we absolutely are working in an art and, house. And it, it feels an art-driven hobby. We strategize it, about bringing kids into the hobby, Lynn, via train yes. sets. But I've been to the big craft stores, and I've seen your school diorama kits. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that you might be actually be introducing kids to model railroading through the back door, get them into building scenery, and then maybe they come up with the idea of, uh, what do I do with this stuff? I can get trains and put, run it through. Do you get any feedback that way? I think most kids probably aren't introduced to model railroading, but I think every child has the opportunity to be introduced to modeling through school. Mm-hmm. Every child, I mean, my own kids, they always have school projects. And a lot of those school projects require that they build a diorama or some sort of project or display, and it requires some sort of, of background, some sort of scenery. 
And that's how we came up with the idea for Scenorama. And it's a natural complement to Woodland Scenics. We make it a little bit different. We used a lot of our current Woodland Scenics products and then created new ones specifically for students. We market it as kits, which offers kids a little bit more structure, but it's our instructions because our instructions are aimed at stimulating the creativity and teaching modeling skills rather than teaching them how to make a specific project. So I think that they learn that, they find out they have a lot of fun with it, and as they grow older, those who really, really take to the hobby of modeling look for other ways that they can use it, and model railroading is a natural step for them. How about your kids? Does mom get a discount? Yes, mom does get a discount. (laughs) Will you adopt me? (laughs) I I know, I finally got my two out of the house. Okay, fine. (laughs) Okay, here's a chance for you to deliver a scoop if you have one. Is there a next big thing we should be looking for from you folks? Yes, there is. Of course, we come out with products all the time. We have some new buildings coming out this month for our N and HO scale. And then we have something very special for O scalers coming out. I can't really say because we're about a month from actually announcing that, but I know they've been thrilled with the built and ready buildings we just started with last year. And we've got some new products for them, so I know they're going to be happy. But we do have a big brand new system coming out this fall. It's something we've been working on for a long time and testing, and I can't tell you what it is, but it is a whole line, a new system of new products. You can't tell us what it is. You can tell us when it is. Is that right? I can tell you when it is. It's It's in October. We're going to unveil it at iHobby. Okay. Well, watch for it. Absolutely. And that is a scoop. You're the first person we've told. (laughs) Lynn, it's been a treat. Thanks for talking with us. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate this, and happy modeling to you. Thank you so much. Lynn Mitchell is with Woodland Scenics. Well, thanks, guys. Here's encouragement for all you plywood Pacific brass hats. Scenery is easier than you think. And, of course, people who are just starting out, maybe doing Scott Perry's Heart of Georgia Railroad, mm-hmm. can use this Woodland Scenic stuff to finish the job. Indeed, they can. And a point we were discussing before we went on the show is that with so much more ready to run, people have more time to explore their creative potential in scenery because Absolutely. they're not spending perhaps as much time on rolling stock kits. That was something that Marty McGurk brought up yeah. in our show on mm-hmm. manufacturing back in episode 43. He said, you know, Scenery is one of those last frontiers that you can't go and buy on a shelf as a completed project. You can buy all sorts of the materials you need from Woodland Scenics and from other scenery suppliers, but you certainly can't go and say, here's the whole town as a piece of scenery complete with the trees, the buildings, everything, just drop it in. That's still sort of the last holdout. The last creative frontier. I want to thank Lynn for giving me a new word, high wob. High wob, yes. What's high wob? Hide it with a bush. (laughs) I have hidden more bad workmanship with Woodland Scenics bushes, so thank you, Lynn, for correcting all my mistakes. Yes, that was wonderful. I'm going to start using that now. We should high-wob right along here, shouldn't we? Can I make a quick note? We talked about the Model Railroad Club of Toronto getting kicked out by the condos. Yes, we did. Uh, The February issue of Railroad Model Craftsman has a cover story on that layout. Yes, it does. That's right. And they've got some new space, apparently. They said that they've they've found some space, not as big as the old space, but at least they think it's going to take a couple years to rebuild, but they're still going at it. And if you're wondering what kind of development pressures push them out, I noticed in the news Toronto is now the fourth largest city in North America. By population, yes. By population, yes. Yes. Lots of places to buy coffee here, but you can't go to the train club. No. (laughs) 
Well, <laughs> check out our Flickr gallery, folks, and go to the themodelrailwayshow.com for interesting links. Well, it's time for us to take our leave. Maybe go get one of those coffees at the coffee shops in the fourth largest city in North America. Next time on the Model Railway Show, Lance Mindheim returns. He's going to talk about the joys and benefits of running one's layout regularly. And to the train show, Code 3, Robert Simmons will tell us how he answers the siren call of the hobby in an ambulance. You'll want to hear our next episode. Say, what could be nicer than a spring day in California, even if some of it is spent indoors? RPM meets are among our favorite activities, and the Western Prototype Modelers Meet will be held in the historic Santa Fe Depot in San Bernardino, California on Saturday, the 13th of April. Check it out on our website. It's another Joe Delia production, so you know it's going to be good. Our thanks to to the rest of our crew, Chris Abbott for the electrons, Otto Vondrack for the bits and bytes, and Dave Woodhead for the cool sounding notes. For Jim Martin, I'm Trevor Marshall. Thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show. Mm-hmm.